Actually, <laughs> Al asked me to do a workshop on the traditions, and he said, what should you call it? And I said, well, if you call it the 12 traditions, nobody will show up. <laughs> so call it what it really is. It's uh, the 12 traditions are the relationship or the principles that allow us to interact with people with relative ease and peace. Uh, I'm, I, uh, you'll never hear me doing a relationships workshop. You'd be better off having uh, Peterson do a Lamaze class. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to try to talk about my experience with the 12 traditions on a personal level because the anything in Alcoholics Anonymous that has been of any value to me is people sharing their personal experience and allow me to connect with what they're talking about and then change my actions a little bit according to what they're saying. Uh, and I'll tell you, I, nothing in my life has changed me in the areas of work and business. And any in the inter, my, my participation in Alcoholics Anonymous is a vital member in a home group and in my relationships with people, whether it's my daughter, if it's a romantic relationship or just friendships or the relationships with the people I sponsor and the guys I, I sponsor the people I sponsor it's almost like a tribal thing we have a we hang around together we do a lot of things together we're very connected and, and the 12 traditions seem to be the the backbone of all of that a um, little bit of a history on how these traditions came about just to so we'll kind of know why the what, what's the big deal about these um, I think most of us by the when we come into AA and we're willing we plunge it into an acceptance of the steps but you know it's it's sort of like enough enough rules enough stuff and the traditions are most of us balk at it uh, and yet I don't think that we would be here if it wasn't for the 12 traditions you know as far back uh, as you can go in recorded history, there's been people dying of alcoholism. And there's been very little success in any efforts by religions or, or government or society to curtail this, this destructive malady and to change things very much for people like us. And, and something very odd happened uh, in 1934, December 11th, a, a washed-up stockbroker who had been detoxed a couple times and several times actually, and he was at the end of his rope, had an experience in Towns Hospital on December 14th. And he was two days sober. It may have very well been DTs. We don't know. But it was an experience that seemed to change his life. And as a result of that, he threw himself into the conviction and acting it accordingly that maybe if he could help other people like himself, that he could keep this experience vital and maybe stay sober. And by uh, May, beginning of May, 1935, no one had stayed sober. And uh, as a result of a conversation with uh, Dr. Silkworth, he changed his thinking a little bit about his approach and ended up on a business trip to Akron, Ohio, a business trip that was the first hope of him ever kind of turning things around materially in his life. He'd been being, he was being supported by his wife, and it was not good, and he... He owed a lot of money, and his deal in Akron went belly up on him. And he paced the 
lobby of the Mayflower Hotel. I've been in that lobby uh, several times over the years, and uh, with a bar down here, and he's uh, distraught. He doesn't even have enough money to get back to New York, and he's pacing, and he doesn't know what to do. And there's, he can hear the people in the bar laughing. And when you're when you're really down and out and depressed, that is a program of attraction. But he had this conviction that he must not drink, and somehow he also had the conviction that if he could find another alcoholic to help, that maybe he could survive this low spot in the road. And and he went to a church directory and started calling people, and he called several numbers without much success, and he finally got a hold of a, a minister who connected him with a woman who uh, had a friend in the Oxford group that was a washed-up proctologist who was... Uh, who tried to get sober many times and failed, and he tried everything, and and he she thought that she'd been praying for this Bob Smith that maybe this Bill Wilson was a godsend, and called Bob's wife to hook these two, this Yankee from New York, Bill Bill Wilson, up with Bob Smith, and Bob couldn't quite meet with him at the moment. He was taking a nap under the dining room table, and uh, <laughs> my kind of drunk. <laughs> um, but they met the next day in the Cyberling Gatehouse. Uh, is Bob's son, who had him and I had become pretty good friends. I used to love to sit around with. He, he sat at my house one time with about twenty of us, and he was telling us stories about the old days. And Smitty talked about how his dad was protesting, and I guess Anne was a pretty strong-willed woman, and I don't. She's pulling him along, I don't know, maybe by the ear, maybe just pulling him, you know, you're going to go see this guy. And, and you know how we are. I mean, we're, you just came off a drunk on, I mean, you were drunk. Uh, we're always coming from behind. We're always guilty. They always have the hammer on us. You know what I mean? They always say, you got to go. And he's gone and he doesn't want to go and he's little Smitty sitting in the back seat and he's bitching to his wife. He can't, I don't want to listen to this Yankee. Talk to me about my drinking. People are always talking to me about my drinking. 15, 20 minutes to get me out of there. And Bill, uh, Dr. Bob Smith went into that room with Bill Wilson and came out several hours later, didn't even want to come out. And he said, he said he'd never met anybody who talked his language like that before. Who, and the, the amazing thing is Bill Wilson never once talked to Bob, to Bob about Bob's drinking. Bill Wilson talked to Bill, uh, Bill Wilson talked to Bob about Bill Wilson's drinking. And Bob started to identify, and he fell in love with, with the whole concept. They moved Bill Wilson into the, into the Smith House on Ardmore Street, and, and uh, they started doing 12-step work, and they st sitting around talking about the, the precepts of the, of the Oxford group and spirituality, and Bob was just loved it all. He loved the, the, the confession of shortcomings. He loved helping people. He loved prayer, meditation, the reading of spiritual literature, all of that, but he didn't like the immense thing. And when it came, to, when it came to that, he kind of dug his heels in and wouldn't. He said to Bill, "You know, you don't understand. Uh, I'm a physician in this town. My reputation's already pretty bad, and I'm not going to do that." And consequently, Dr. Bob Smith drank again through his refusal and unwillingness to do step eight and nine. He was uh, came back from a medical convention in, in Atlantic City on what most historians, not all. Some will debate this date, but most of them, the consensus is on the morning of June 10th, he came to in the Smith home. They'd, 
He, they, the conductor had laid him on the side of the platform at the Akron station. He was so drunk he couldn't walk. He was out of it. And they came down took him back to Ardmore Street and came to in the morning of, of what is believed to be June 10th. And he was, came to shaking and whips and jingles, wanting to jump out of his skin. And he said, what day is it? And they said, June 10th. And he said, oh, my God, it can't be June 10th. I have a surgery to perform this morning. And he's a proctologist, so you can use your imagination on what kind of surgery it was. And, and he's shaking like this, and man, just. And Bill gave him a couple drinks and a sedative and sent him into the surgery. Um, we don't know what happened to the patient. Uh, <laughs> we know he lived, that's all. My friend Bill. Bill Bill P. used to work for Hazleton as a historian to search the Akron Hospital records trying to find out, get in touch with this guy to find out if he was all right or what happened to him. We just know he lived. And, and I know, understand. I mean, we want to know. Did, like, did he whistle when he walked or what? I mean, but, uh, the surgery was over late that morning, and uh, Bob Smith disappeared. Disappeared off. Nobody knew where he was. And he didn't come back all that late that morning. He didn't come back that afternoon. He didn't come back till late that evening. Bill and Ann both thought he went drinking, as I would have thought. If you give a guy a couple beers and a sedative, you'd think, well, I should. he didn't know what else to do. I'd probably set him off again. And he didn't drink. And he went out and spent that day making amends and looking up every single person he was afraid to face. And... The rest is history. Dr. Bob never took another drink again than the rest of his natural life. He died sober, helped short estimates, over 5,000 people. Short estimates. And I guess you could say in a sense that maybe Alcoholics Anonymous was founded on Dr. Bob's eighth step. I don't know what would have happened to us if we would have dug his heels in one more time. But the two of them got to work in Akron. They started uh, through Akron. Uh, your sister Ignatia and other people in the, in the area, they started going out and talking to people and trying to do 12-step work and use through the hospital. They would get, every time a drunk would come in there, they'd go talk to him. And, and in a few years, uh, a very small fellowship had, had sprung up around them, not very big really. Uh, and in New York there was one, and then eventually there was one that happened in Cleveland. And, but there was not a very big population. In the beginning of the big book, it, in 1939 when the big book was written, it says that we were the 100 men and women. Well, most historians agree, agree that that was not true. It wasn't 100. It was somewhere, the low estimates are 76, the high estimates are 81. Uh, so, but, but I, Bill is, thinks like I think. I mean, 100 sounds better. I mean, that's, <laughs> you've got to have a little torque on reality. You know, you know what I mean? Just a little bit. So, so the fellowship is not, in four years, has not, since 1935, has not grown very much, really, through diligent effort. And then a couple things started to happen. And one of the things that happened was the publishing of this book. And a few people started coming to Alcoholics Anonymous and getting sober as a result of this book. There was a baseball star in Cleveland, uh, Raleigh Helmsley, and Raleigh was interviewed by the press one time, and he gave this talk to the press about how AA had changed, changed his life. And, and the Cleveland group of Alcoholics Anonymous was inundated by hundreds of requests for help, and, and that group just grew like wildfire. There was a magazine article in Liberty Magazine. I have a copy of the original one back at home. Where 
talked about alcoholics and God, and it was a, a pretty good article. And some people came in. It was a little religious for a lot of people. And then something happened that really changed the face of Alcoholics Anonymous. There was a crackerjack journalist, uh, no-nonsense kind of guy that was willing to go undercover and expose corruption and fraud, and he had a good reputation. His name was Jack Alexander. He'd exposed some uh, corruption in one of uh, one, a church and he did the unions in Philadelphia and a bunch of stuff, and he just had a reputation that this guy can't be bought. He's a no-nonsense guy. He'll get in there and dig out the dirt, and he heard about Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and I'm sure he must have thought, oh, man, this is some kind of scam. And he came to Alcoholics Anonymous and attended some meetings and talked to some people, and he investigated us. And to, I'm sure to his delight, he was amazed to find out that we were exactly what we said we were. That where there was nobody here making money off of this. There was nobody profiting. There was nobody getting a toaster for signing people up. There was none of that stuff. That we were just simply people who had who had been dying of alcoholism and we found that if we practiced a certain spiritual way of life and devoted our life to helping other alcoholics that we had a chance and Alcoholics Anonymous started growing just amazingly quick I mean just that Jack Alexander article which appeared in the Saturday Evening Post uh, brought thousands and thousands of requests for help and that the office in New York City, where they, they put the address in there, was inundated by just stacks of letters, and they didn't know what to do with them, and they were sending them out to groups all over the country. Uh, the, the Los Angeles group received st a huge stack of letters for help from people in Southern California. And this, this, the Los Angeles group at the time was fairly new. Uh, matter of fact, I, I'd, I'd been friends with a woman who... She's now dead now. She died with 50-some years of sobriety. She was the first woman to ever get sober west of the Rockies. And her name was Sybil. And Sybil uh, would tell the story. Of, she wasn't even done shaking. She was still having like a little bit of tremors and stuff. She was maybe two days sober, and they gave her a stack of letters of women asking for help and sent her out doing 12-step work. Uh, it's a little unlike today where a guy will sit around at a club for two years until he feels ready. I, mean, you, uh, I think that'd be a good tombstone. Uh, now, finally feels ready for 12-step work. <laughs> right? <laughs> they didn't give you that option in those days, man. They were desperate. You just go, just go. And she went out and she's, I, Sybil helped a lot of women. I mean, a lot of women. There was a, a doctor, uh, Bill Baer, who worked for, uh, actually was a member of the uh, American Medical Association. And, and in 1946, he was uh, asked to research us and make a, a, a broadcast for NBC uh, and, and to talking about what he found Alcoholics Anonymous to be. And it's a very small portion of that broadcast is published in the back of the big book in an obscure section that very few people ever read called The Medical View of Alcoholism. But Bill uh, found us to be amazing. He loved what he found. And uh, more people came in, especially in the New York area, into, into Alcoholics Anonymous as a result of his broadcast. And if you ever get a chance, I tell you what, the, Bill, Bill Baer nailed us in that, in that article, in that talk, rather. He's, I don't know how a guy could just interview a few of us and go to a few meetings and get what he got about us. But he got something easily 
just with a little bit of exposure to him that I had to be sitting in meetings for five years on a daily basis before I even started to get. And what he said, he says that Alcoholics Anonymous are not crusaders, which for the most part is true. Even there's a phase some of us go through. That's for the most part that's true. Uh, he said we're not a temperance movement, and that's true. We're not against alcohol. We're not trying to stamp out alcohol. Alcohol is not our problem. We know that. It's alcoholism. He said they are people who know that they must never drink. And some of us, that was a painful, painful realization of trying and failing till we get that. And he says that they devote themselves to helping others with similar problems. And in that atmosphere of the alcoholic helping other alcoholics, he nails this. He says in that atmosphere, the alcoholic often overcomes his excessive concentration upon himself. And alcoholics, and that's exactly what we were doing. And it was the, the driving engine of our expansion was a combination of grace and luck and our desperate need to free ourselves of ourselves by helping people that are ourselves. It's because when I help a new guy, I'm really, it's, it's the me in him that I'm helping. And I don't know that right away. And so what the growth of Alcoholics Anonymous, there was a lot of pain. There was a lot of problems that started occurring. There was a lot of bickering and fighting. Uh, there's remnants of it. The, 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 there was a, a division between the Cleveland Akron groups and New York. They almost hated each other. Now, Bob and Bill always got away, got along. But to this day, there's, there's old-timers in Akron. If you talk to them, they'll still refer to Bill Wilson as the Antichrist. I mean, I mean really, and, and, and vice versa. There was a lot of bickering between those groups. There was a, a group in Florida that was charging money for membership. The, the, the executive, they formed an executive committee in, in 1940 of the Los Angeles group of Alcoholics Anonymous. They had a board who governed AA. I got a copy of a letter at home that was written to a, a gal named Irma Livoni, and Irma, Irma was one of Sybil's sponsees, a gal that she'd worked with. And in this letter, they, Al Marino and all those, some of those old guys, they all signed it. They, revo they revoked Irma's membership to Alcoholics Anonymous because she liked men. She liked all kinds of men. She liked married men, single men. She didn't care. She liked men. And they revoked her membership for being flirtatious and all that stuff in Alcoholics Anonymous. Which, this is before the traditions. I'll tell you, I, some of the, the pillars of Alcoholics Anonymous today are women that were just like Irma Livoni. I mean, I'm glad that we eventually had the traditions. Uh, there were people getting drunk. Bill Wilson's getting inundated by letters from around the country that Alcoholics Anonymous has fallen apart. There was a guy in the Carolinas that wrote a letter to, the, uh, to New York saying that this is the same thing that happened in the Washingtonians. Bill Wilson later discovered through being astute and doing some research that uh, this was exactly what had happened to the Washingtonians, an organization that in the mid-1980s had grown from just a couple drunkards in a bar trying to help each other to to an organization that had a couple hundred thousand members. We're not really sure. Some I've heard estimates of anywhere from a hundred thousand to a half, to a half million members. But we know one thing for sure: the Washingtonians got more drunk sober in a shorter period of time than any organization on this planet ever. 
much more. You've got to remember, in, 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 in a, just a few years, we barely had over 100 members. They had hundreds of thousands of members. I mean, that's a st- And they did that without telephone, without public transportation, without anything that we had going for us. They did it one alcoholic helping another alcoholic. But they, the same thing was going on, Bill found, in the Washingtonians. It was going on in Alcoholics Anonymous. They had a lot of infighting, a lot of bickering. Uh, they were, uh, people were trying to charge money for their services, and they were getting diverted into all these other areas. They took, an, they took a stance on the abolition of slavery. They took a stance on the war. Mexico, they took a stance uh, with it. They aligned themselves, and this probably hurt them more than anything. They aligned themselves with the temperance movement. Uh, they, took, they took adversarial stances towards certain church people that, that made things about alcoholism and sin, and they got in battles with those people. They took them on as if that was their job to straighten these religious zealots out and they're you know, thinking that we were the spawn of Satan or whatever they'd say. And as a result, within less than a decade, the Washingtonians didn't exist. And those couple hundred thousand people the ones that were real alcoholics that had found hope, uh, most of them died of alcoholism. And Bill Wilson uh, read that and was horrified because he read that and thinking he thought to himself, I'm sure as I would have, this is happening to us. We're in trouble here. And Bill, Bill was an often, an often very astute and often inspired person. And I don't, Bill, I think in, in maybe every generation, maybe there's one guy like Bill Wilson that comes along somehow. And a guy that just seems to have an ability at odd times to connect with something that is greater than himself and be inspired. I, I, I absolutely believe that that happened when he wrote the big book. And I absolutely believe that that happened when he wrote the traditions. Um, the traditions, actually, to... to today are probably one of the greatest gifts that Alcoholics Anonymous will give to the world. Uh, there's, there's companies now that are starting to employ the, the spiritual principles in the 12 traditions in their companies to make the company spiritually healthy because what, what seems to be sort of common is, is a business starts to get sick of spirit, then financially in every other area it gets sick. It just follows along. When families get sick, the spirit of the family gets sick, the people start to get sick, and the, and the relationships start to deteriorate. And these, uh, he put these principles in place. I, uh, I ran a corporation for a lot of years that was very successful, and I, I ran it on the 12 traditions. Now, my, my staff were not members of Alcoholics Anonymous, but they knew about these principles because we talked about them in staff meetings very, uh, very much. And they all understood the basic premise that our common welfare is paramount. It comes before the welfare of any person here. It is, is, it is, the, is the deal. And in the, in the traditions, a lot like the steps, the problem is really defined and addressed in tradition number one, just like the problem is defined and addressed in step number one. Lack of power and an absolute inability to manage my own life, drunk or sober. And by the time you get to step 12, the problem has been solved because you've had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Something has happened to you. You're different now. 
And we get the same thing through the 12 traditions. The problem is defined in tradition one when it says our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. Lack of unity is the problem, not only in, in when, it was, when I had problems in my business, because people are bickering and there's conflict and not everybody's on the same page and there's no structure and there's, it's a lack of unity. And so the business starts to go south. Whether it's, in your a, whether it's in your AA group, if there's a lack of unity, if you have too many personalities dominant, too many people pulling it towards their own, their own self-will in certain directions, that's what can destroy a group. And on a personal level, uh, I drank because of a lack of unity. I drank because sober I don't fit. Because sober I'm not a part of. I, I don't know how to integrate myself with people and be a part of sober. I need about five drinks to belong, to be a part of. And I drank for unity. And as a result, by the time I get to step 12, and I'm practicing the 12th step, God is starting to show me how to create the fellowship I've craved all my life and wouldn't even admit it. I would hide it underneath bluster. I don't need anybody. Thank you. But inside me, behind all of that, I don't need anybody. I've yearned to be a part of. I was a lonely, depressed guy. And I just wanted to be a part of. So the, for the problem is really defined in, in the first tradition. Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon a unity. And my personal recovery depends upon a unity. And th- that's the, there's, no, there's no lone rangers here. That's the problem. Is I think every one of us gets wants to come here, get the principles, and go off by ourselves because we don't like people. I don't. Most alcoholics don't like people. I mean, we you know we're, it's it's not that we don't like people. It's just when we sober up, we come just we become so painfully aware of what's wrong with them <laughs> that they're they're just they're they're irritants. They're ir- people are irritants. They're irritants, and so. I had to, as a chronic relapser for a number of years, I got to watch a guy who was my running partner in a halfway house. We run the marijuana maintenance program together. We smoke pot and sit in the back of the meeting and figure out what's wrong with everybody. You know, you know, I mean, if you're going to judge properly, you need a partner to get the right torque on the personalities. And he, he drank, or I, he saw me drink again. And as a result of that, he got sober, changed his sobriety, he got a sponsor, and joined AA. I mean joined AA. He became one of those guys that we used to pick, pick apart, that we used to make fun of. And his life changed. And I, if, if nothing else I ever saw as a result of watching him as I came to another treatment center and saw how his life had changed, I think somewhere inside of me was a sense that if my life is ever to be changed, is ever to change, I must somehow become a part of you, something that I don't know how to do. But my personal recovery will depend upon my being unified with you. I must find this fellowship I crave. Tradition number two, it says, For our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. That's an add-on. This is the only, this is the only tradition that in the lo- short form, it's longer than the long form. 
which makes the 12 traditions very alcoholic. I mean, it just <laughs> makes perfect sense to me. Um, and this, uh, this concept that nobody's in charge except a, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience, a lot of new people come to AA and they're looking for the boss because they want to get next to the juice. You know, who's the boss here? And there's no boss. I mean, as a matter of fact, Alcoholics Anonymous is backwards from every other place on the planet. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you come in a big shot and work your way up to servant. <laughs> most, most places, it's the other way around. You come in a servant, you sweep the floors, in 10 years, you're a manager. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is the, is the opposite. Uh, we come in here big shots and we eventually, if we're lucky, we become servants. And that's really where the juice is. Those of us that survive our own alcoholism must eventually get to a place where, where we cross the line. We're no longer takers. We become givers. We become servants. Because when you think about it, if you come here and you stay a taker, all you're going to get really is alcoholism because that's all we got. But when you become the giver, and that is true, that was true in my experience from day one in the detox when I stopped shaking. They had me go talk to the other people that were still in the detox beds that were still doing pretty bad physically. And they told me things like, you want to feel better about being sober? Go help this guy feel better about being sober. And I'd go talk to this guy about, try to make him feel better about being sober. What happened? I started feeling better about being sober that you always get what you give away here. That's why some of us have tremendous vacancy in our life after years of trying of acquisition, acquisition. And the more acquisition I get, it's like I, I make the hole bigger. There's, I saw a set of tapes over there that had a, a thing on the cover, that I, a line I use all the time. Spiritual growth comes from subtraction, never from addition. It's about abandoning myself of ideas and judgments and uh, the things that, that keep me from trying to be the ultimate authority. Because if you want to feel if you want to if you want to feel not a part of Alcoholics Anonymous, become the guy that knows everything. You'll instantly just be out. You'll just be outside the circle, sitting right in the middle of the room, by doing that. One of my favorite this this concept of our leaders are but trusted servants. One of my favorite pieces of old English literature, and I, I don't know why I remembered this from high school, but I remember in, in an English class we, we read this story uh, by Milton called Paradise Lost, and there was a, a passage in there that just seemed to stick out in my mind. I remembered it where, where Lucifer had cast himself out of heaven basically by his own self-will. And his parting remarks is he shaked, shook his fist at God and the angels of heaven. He said, I would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. And isn't it odd that it's a universal experience for those of us here that when we're reigning, it feels like hell, and when we're serving, it feels like heaven? Right? What is it about me that when I go to work and I'm going to straighten them out because they're out of line, by the end of the day, I felt like I've had the day from hell. And if I go to work and I spend the whole day just trying to be God's go-to guy, just being the guy that wants to just be helpful. How can I help? By the end of that day, man, I feel connected to some kind of flow here. Um, it's, it's happening. It's good. It's heaven. Tradition number three, and I want to I talk a little bit about the long form. You know, the long form was originally written in 1945. 
And Bill Wilson, for almost three years, tried to get the groups to accept the long form, and they wouldn't accept it. Uh, they wouldn't even read it. And I understand why. We read the long form at my home group the first Thursday of every month. And, and if you've ever been in a meeting where they read the long form, it's, it's long. I mean, it's really <laughs> long. I mean, and you know, you just watch the newcomers roll in their eyes. And, uh, you know, it, there's the last line in the last tradition, it's tradition 12, I thought, for the first time I ever had this read, I thought the reader put this in there. I didn't realize it was actually in there. It says, and, and finally. I thought that was like, you know, because it's so long, it's actually in there. <laughs> and so I understand why people don't want to read in the meeting. They don't want to talk about them. Because it's, you know how we are. We're, we're really me-oriented people. And I don't want to talk about that. It interferes with time. We could be talking about me. You know, and people were talking around me and relating, and relating to me, and but it should be about more about me. And traditions don't seem to be enough about me. And so they, Bill ran into a lot of resistance, to such resistance that there are letters in our archives uh, where groups wrote to Bill Wilson. He was probably one of the most sought-after speakers in the in the 40s, asking him to come and talk, and under the provision that he promised not to mention the 12 traditions. That's how adamant Alcoholics Anonymous was against this long form. And Alcoholics Anonymous is dying. And there was pressure and uh, what my friend Bob Pearson believes was one of the guys, key early writers of the great guy from the Grapevine staff and a couple other people, uh, pressured Bill to an abbreviated version which has become the short form. And I think Bill eventually conceded to that. And he didn't actually, he had input into it, but it was actually fleshed out more by some other people. And uh, Alcoholics Anonymous adopted the short form, which is common today. There's a lot, there's a huge percentage of our fellowship that doesn't even know that the long form exists or have never read the long form. And yet that is the original version that was handed down to us, uh, by, I think, by, God, by God's inspiration through Bill Wilson. I'm not so sure that the short form is as inspired. And the differences between the long form and the short form have actually changed the face of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't think when Bill agreed to the short form as putting it out in the grapevine and uh, eventually at the conference in 1950, they imagined that, that the effect that this would have. I've often wondered what Alcoholics Anonymous would be like today if we would have... Uh, he would have held his ground and insisted on the long form. But evidently it wasn't meant to be because it didn't happen that way. But there's a tremendous difference in the third tradition. It, the short form is, everybody knows the short form, is, it talks about the membership requirement. It says the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. Well, in the original long form, it was different. It says in the long form, it says our membership ought to include all who suffer from alcoholism. Hence, we may refuse none who wish to recover from alcoholism. Not from drinking, from alcoholism. Nor ought AA membership ever depend upon money or conformity. And any two or three alcoholics gathered together for sobriety may call themselves an AA group, provided that as a group they have no other affiliation. Well, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous today because of that membership requirement, not because of the short form. I, uh, to be truth told, I didn't even want, I didn't have a desire not to drink. If God would have come to me when I was new and offered, give me one wish, it would not have been sobriety. My one wish is I would have said to God, 
Let me drink like I drank when I was 18 years old. Give me, you give me five years like that, you can kill me at the end of the five years, but give me the five years. Square business. I didn't have a desire not to drink. I had a desire to stop hurting because I suffered from alcoholism and I didn't know what that was. But it didn't stop when I quit drinking. As a matter of fact, it got more painful because I had no anesthetic. That's when I stop drinking is when I really start to suffer from alcoholism. That's when I, this big hole opens up in the center of my being. That's where my head spins with crazy thoughts. That's when I go through the emotional roller coaster rides. That's when I suffer from low-level depressions and bouts of anxiety and feelings of anxious apartness because I don't fit very good. And it seems like my spirit withers and dies. I'm a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous because of the membership requirement in the long form. I am here because I suffer from alcoholism. And just like a diabetic who shows up for his insulin every day, he shows up for his insulin because he suffers from diabetes. And if he doesn't take the insulin, he can, it can kill him. And if I don't take the remedy that I found in Alcoholics Anonymous, this spiritual solution, I will die of alcoholism. That simple. And as a result of changing the membership requirement, what has happened is something that I, I don't think Bill Wilson ever imagined would happen is that a large portion of the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous today is, the, is what you could almost consider having acute rather than chronic alcoholism. They are people whose alcoholism ends where the bottle ends. And when they stop drinking, they don't suffer from alcoholism. They kind of fit. They're gregarious, friendly, happy people when they're sober. They just get along well. They're very successful in their relationships. They do very well. I mean, if you're like me, you just hate people like that. You know what I mean? You just, I can't stand people like because I stopped drinking, and I'm not about any of that. I'm a mope when I don't drink. I'm a not, not a, it wouldn't be so bad if I was just a mope. I'm a driven mope. You know, I, I'm a frantic mope. We're trying to fill this vacancy inside of me. I'm, I don't do well sober. I don't do well. I suffer from alcoholism. So what has happened uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous is we have a significant portion of our fellowship. I have no idea what the percentage is. I heard Charlie from Arkansas one time say he thought it was 40%. I don't know where he gets those figures. I have no idea. But I know it's significant. I know people I, I know people that are sober 20 years in AA, happy in their sobriety with the benefit of step none. I'm not that guy. And I, a matter of fact, the first sponsor I ever got in Alcoholics Anonymous when I was in Pennsylvania, I was sober about two or three months, and he was sober about five or six years. And he, I, I was attracted to him. He was very successful. One of the, he's very happy, sober. Got a great marriage, great business, made a lot of money. And he worked a three-step program recovery. Step one, don't drink. Step two, go to AA to fill the social void that's now occurred in your life because you're not going to parties and bars. So AA to him is like the sober Alps, kind of. <laughs> and step three, sell Amway. <laughs> and I tried his program of recovery, and I'm dying here. Because I don't get, when I, with that program of recovery, I don't do well. I always go back to drinking eventually. But then I don't, I don't have what he has. And did you ever notice in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a bafflement between the two, between the chronic and the acute alcoholics. The acute alcoholics whose problem stops when they stop drinking, 
and, and some of them drank, have a horrendous drinking stories, drank t- tremendous levels of self-destruction. But when they stop drinking, they're fine. And then when you, when a real alcoholic who, with untreated alcoholism drinks again, they say things to him like, well, just, just don't drink. And the guy that's relapsing chronically going, is going, yeah, I know, but I'm trying here. Because the real alcoholic's problem is a lack of power that the chronic alcoholic doesn't have. He's only powerless over alcohol once he drinks it. But the people who have the physical allergy plus the malady of the spirit, I am, prob- I am powerless over alcohol once I've been rem- it's been removed from me. I always go back to it. And so I, if, you're a, if you're a gentleman or a woman who who's been sober a number of years and you really the truth is you don't need the steps I mean you're fine and you never really did and you haven't had a desire to work them and you want to be helpful you can give people rides to meetings but you can't transmit something you haven't got so I think guys like me can really um, I have to I, my life depends upon me playing the hand that I was dealt I can't play the hand of a problem drinker. I will die. And the problem drinker has no need or inclination to play the hand I was dealt either, really. I mean, they may. It doesn't hurt them to work the steps. It's, it would be better, be a more sensible proposition to assume you're a chronic alcoholic and work the steps because the steps won't hurt you and find out later that you probably didn't need to. You could have stayed sober anyway than it would be to assume that you don't need them and find out how wrong you are because that's a mistake some of us won't survive. Uh, and it's always, when it comes to a terminal illness like alcoholism, it's my, my belief that it's always better to err on the side of prudence. So I, I, I and none of us are, I, I can't pronounce anybody else alcoholic, but I can observe that there are people in AA that do well for the rest of their life with the benefit of no steps at all. And I grew up with guys like that. They never made it to AA. They just quit drinking. And they were fine. And they looked like alcoholics. They were bad cases. They drank abusively. But when they quit, they were fine. Tradition number five, number four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. That's a, that's a principle I, tried to, I really tried to work in my business is not pay any attention to what my competition's doing and the, and the pressures in the industry and just do what we felt was right for the spirit of our business. What's the right thing to do here? And every group in Alcoholics Anonymous is given a tremendous amount of freedom that we can do anything we want here as a group provided that it doesn't reflect, reflect badly on AA. Uh, we have that autonomy, which is our, our total freedom to, to conduct a meeting any way we want. Uh, there's meetings in Alcoholics Anonymous that are very structured. There's meetings that have no structure. There's meetings that practice the steps. There's, there's meetings that you never hear the steps talked about. And I, I, think, I, I, I think that Alcoholics Anonymous meetings are kind of like bars. Remember when you were drinking? If you drank in a big city, there was a lot of different types of bars. There was... Gay bars, there was redneck bars, there was 
metal, metal, heavy metal rock bars, there were biker bars, there were gangster bars, there was yuppie bars. And some of those bars you'd feel very comfortable at, and some of those bars you wouldn't. I got to find my the same thing with Alcoholics Anonymous. What is what is the groups in Alcoholics Anonymous that fills my holes as a as a recovering alcoholic? And I my home group is very service oriented. Uh, we do 15 H and I meetings a week. We have a speaker meeting where we hear a solid, fundamental message of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, we have book studies and book workshops and tradition workshops, and there's never, there, I have ne never been to one meeting in my home group ever where I ever for a moment wondered if it was an AA meeting. Now, I've been to some meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they, they have a right to be this way where it's everything, you, you can sit there for a half hour and forget you were in an AA meeting. Um, but that's okay. Every group has the autonomous ability to do that. They can be anything they want. That's just not my bar, right? That's just not my bar. Tradition number five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. And I, I think that in, in not only in an AA group, but as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I will get sick the further I am from my primary purpose, and I think a group will also. There's a group in Las Vegas uh, that's dying. If you, if you went there... The, the feeling in the group is in the meeting is it's a depressed there's a depressed spirit there and it's a bunch of good old boys it's a men's dad good old boys but there's no new people there there's no 12 step work done there's no service commitments it's just a group of guys that talk about themselves and it's and there's a lot of camaraderie there's some guys that I know there that go there that I've loved that I've known for a lot of years but I go to meetings like that, and I don't feel good as a result of coming out the meeting. I feel like there's something missing, and that group's and that group's dying. There's there hasn't been any new blood in that group in a long time, because they they forgot their primary purpose. Their primary purpose is to help other alcoholics, and I am capable of that. I, one of the things that I've noticed of all the people I've seen that have relapsed with over 15 years of sobriety or that have committed suicide. And I'll tell you, we've had a rash of them over the years. Guys, 31 and a half years, 23 and a half years, 17 years, eight, we've had a lot of suicides sober. And the one common denominator between the people that relapse again or commit suicide sober is, is not what you would, most people would think. Most people would think, oh, I bet you they stopped going to meetings. No. Frank, who put a plastic bag over his head at 23 and a half years of sober, went to a meeting the day he did it. What the common, and, and some of these guys pray, they, it's not that they stop praying, the common denominator is that they, for a period of time, a, a sustained period of time before they went south on us, they had lived their life as if their primary purpose was them and not helping other people. And I know because I, in my 19th year of sobriety, I, I went through a bad spot. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. And the crazy part about it, unlike some other bad spots I'd been through, is that my life was perfect. I had more money in the bank than I could spend in a lifetime. I had a, a couple $80,000 cars in the garage that were paid for, two custom Harleys. I mean, I, I lived in a big house. I had a lot of prestige in the community. I mean, I was well-known and very respected and liked. I was a, a business owner that was very, 
very successful. I had everything, and I was, I was dying. I was dying, and I felt depressed, and, and as if my spirit was depressed in the middle of an abundant life. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I was still going to probably seven meetings a week. But something had happened to me, and what had happened is my shift had changed until a friend of mine pulled me aside one day and he told me the truth. He says, he says, you go to a lot of meetings and you sponsor guys and run your mouth in Alcoholics Anonymous. He says, but I don't think helping others is your primary purpose. And he hit me. He says, I think you are your primary purpose. And he said that I knew he was right. I, my relationships, my emotions, my life, my toys, my finances, I was the center again and I was my primary purpose. And I, I'll tell you, that was a, an amazing event for me because that snapped me. Within a week, I got a car full of newcomers and I'm rocking and rolling. I started listening to the guys I sponsored because in that, I became the kind of sponsor that you'd come and talk to me and I'd just stand there and nod my head and just with an attitude of like, well, just get this over with so I can get back to the important stuff. Me. <laughs> I was the, yeah, 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 come on, come on. What's the bottom line here, you know? I became that kind of guy, right? That's, isn't that terrible? But I did, and I didn't know I became that kind of guy, that I was all about me. But that's what happened to me. And I started listening to the people I sponsored and really trying to practice being present there with them. It wasn't easy. Six, an AA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the AA name to any related facility or outside enterprise lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. And what else is going to divert you from your primary purpose? Money, property, prestige, relationships. I'd add that in there. What are the things that draw my attention and my focus away from my primary purpose? What are the things that, that where I seek power and validation? And isn't it, 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 my experience has been my ultimate connection with God when I'm plugged in and I mean I have a sense of community with God and every and this whole planet is not, is not the times I'm in deep meditation or in prayer, even though meditation and prayer are very important to me. It are the, it's the times when I'm in the middle of listening to a fifth step. Or I'm, it's 2 o'clock in the morning and I'm sitting with some guy that's going to fly apart waiting for a bed to open up at the county hospital. When I something inside of me is just pulled out of me and I'm present with him. And those are the moments when I feel the presence of God stronger in my life than I ever have felt through prayer and meditation. Because those are the times when there's a completeness about me because I am living my primary purpose. The purpose, I think, that I have been divinely crafted to serve. When I, when I, started, when I started buying this concept of my primary purpose is to help other alcoholics, for the first time in my life, everything in my life made perfect sense. Because everything about me, all my defects of character, my self-centeredness, my petty, pathetic fears, my, my judgmental resentments, and all of that, everything bad or good, my failures in sobriety, everything that's about me all of a sudden became useful. 
Because I, when, I'm, when I'm sitting with a guy, and Don talked about this a little bit earlier, when I'm sitting with a guy, the things that are the most useful to the guys I sponsor are not my successes. I've never sat down and, and, and enhanced some new guy's life by telling him how much money I made last year. You know, that's matter of fact, if, if you want to, if anything, it'll drive them, it'll end up, you'll end at the top of their resentment list. I mean, I mean it's not a, but if I tell you about my divorce, and I tell you about uh, some of my petty judgments and resentments. And if I tell you about the fears I've had, the things I've been afraid of, it's in those moments that I connect with you and that I'm the most useful, where I serve my primary purpose. There's not, a, there's not a place on this earth that I can be more effective than I can be with working with other alcoholics. And, and that's not to diminish that my, I can't be effective in my community. I've been involved in a lot of charitable events and things in my community, and it's nice, good stuff. You can be involved in a church. You can That's great. It's good stuff. But I am divinely crafted by the pain of my experience to be of ultimate use to guys that are just like me, just like me. And maybe not everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous. We have, there's the old saying that we have a wrench for every nut here. But I am divinely crafted to be helpful to people that are sick like I'm sick. Not everybody. But in, in, in every, every time I go down to detox, there might be 20, 30 guys there. I'm looking for that one guy. I'm looking for that. And he's always there. Now, he may or may not be ready, but I'm his man. You know what I'm saying? I'm the guy. I'm, he's I'm the guy. He's the guy that we're. I'm brought to that meeting. We're brought together by divine appointment. Me and that guy. Whether I whether he gets sober that time or two years later, as some of the guys I've tried to sponsor, sometimes I've been in and out for a number of years, and all of a sudden they turn the corner. As I got a couple guys right now, they're like that. They've turned the corner. So nothing should divert me from my primary purpose. And the only things that will divert me, really, are things involving self. That's the only thing that, that gets between me and God, me and you, and me and my primary purpose is me. And all the aspects of me are, as it says in our fourth step, the manifestations of self which have been blocking me. Tradition number seven, every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. I was told in early sobriety that I had to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. I had an opportunity at about 10 months sober, no, maybe close to a year sober, to get on unemployment. And my sponsor, I was going to take home $120 from unemployment. My sponsor made me take a job where I took home $97 a week, <laughs> working 40 hours a week. And I'm thinking, have you ever had math in school? I mean, this <laughs> But he, he wouldn't let me he wouldn't let me take the unemployment because he knew that if I was going to ever respect myself, I must stand up and be self-supporting through my own contributions. That my self-esteem would depend upon my showing up in my life in particular. That I had been a taker all my life, and I lived off women. I lived off my parents. I lived on. I took welfare checks. I took food stamps. I lived off society. I lived off stealing from people and sleeping on your couch and eating your food and stealing your money. That I, my, I must turn that around. I must be self-supporting through my own contributions. And I, I, we have an ethic. One of the reasons in my home group 
that we're able to fly a speaker in from all over the country every single week is that we some, well for a couple of reasons some of the some of the people that come in are visiting Las Vegas anyway so we kind of they're going to come out anyway so we just have to speak we put them up for one night and others we pay for their flight and the whole deal when we when we can't find somebody we can't find them that they're going to be coming out anyway we're able to do that because we don't put nobody I don't think anybody in our group anymore puts a dollar in the basket uh, we put five dollars usually in your home group two dollars if it's a group that's you're not a home group I mean, because when you think about it, if you come to an A group and you drink five cups of coffee and put a dollar in a basket, you're a taker. Now, maybe you really can't afford anything more than a dollar, and then that's a whole different ballgame. If you don't have the money, matter of fact, I've seen groups say if you don't, can't put a dollar and take one out, that's a dangerous proposition, but it's, a, <laughs> but it's never it's seen, I've never seen a group hurt by saying that. Uh, but if you're working... I remember one time I was new and I was at one of the clubs and my sponsor, I didn't put a dollar in the basket and after the meeting I went up and bought a pack of cigarettes and he just reamed me out. Man. He said, you won't put any money in that basket. You'll go, but, but I have to have cigarettes. He says, you, don't, you, put, you, come, you come here, you drink three, four cups of coffee, you put a dollar in them. If you can afford cigarettes, put a dollar in them. He was tough on me, tough on me. But I was able to claim my seat here. You know, if I would have come here and used Alcoholics Anonymous like, a, like another welfare state, or if I would have remained a taker here, I'd have died here. I'd have died. Tradition number eight, and I'm going to talk about this in the long form a little bit. In the, eight, in the short form, it says, Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. In the long form, it's very different. It's... The long form, it says, Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional. We define professionalism as the occupation of counseling alcoholics for fees or hire. But we may employ alcoholics where they are going to perform those services for which we might otherwise have to engage non-alcoholics. In our central office, we have a custodian. He gets paid what a custodian would get paid. An office manager will get paid the, the skills of a clerical worker that we would have had to hire. But it's not to 12-step people. It's never to 12-step. He says such special services may be re recompensed, but our usual AA 12-step work is never, never to be paid for. Never. And what's the first occupation that every newcomer wants to get into that's unemployed. I mean, they, they want to be an alcoholism counselor. Because your mom, and I did, I worked the first year of sobriety in a treatment center because my head went like a computer. Okay, i got to help people. How can I profit from that? <laughs> you know, I mean, really. And my first sponsor used to, he hated the fact I had that job. He used to make fun of me all the time. And he'd, he'd insist that I would go and do 12-step work when I wasn't working and I didn't want to. I didn't want to because I thought I did it all day long for a living and he kept saying it's not the same. It's not the same. And I st and statistically, of all the occupations a recovering alcoholic could get into, the highest relapse rate is alcoholism counseling. I mean, you have a better chance staying sober as a drug dealer than you do as an alcoholic. <laughs> 
And yet that's the first thing I want to do. I because it's it's all about me. And what happened is I you know, I would go to the seminars and I'd been certified in, in reality therapy and a bunch of stuff from when I was in treatment centers and went through courses and stuff. And so I started taking a professional stance towards recovery. I became unsponsorable. And I don't want to go out and sponsor guys and help people after work because I do that 10 hours a day. And what I'm doing is I'm cutting off the flow of power through my life, which on one end comes from me getting stuff from the old timers and direction from something other than the great I am. And on the other end, by going out and giving away anything I got to these new people. And I'm cutting off both ends of the flow. I was up in the Rocky Mountains 15, 20 years ago, and these guys took me to a, a lake. And this lake was so pristine and so clear and clean, you could see the rocks on the bottom. And the reason it was that way, on the one side of the lake, there was a stream with water fast moving in. And on the other side of the lake, there was a stream with water moving out. And it could never get stagnant. And here I am. I'm blocking off both ends. And I was doing bad. And I became unsponsorable that way. I said, you know what I did? Here's the kind of sponsee I was. I would call up my sponsor after I went through something to explain him what to explain to him what I did in case he ever needed that information. <laughs> but I couldn't ask for direction. I was at the helm of my own ship again. And God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. I lost that job and could not get back a job in that field again. Thank God. And it's, some people are able to do that. My friend, I have a friend, Keith, who's done that for 30 years, and he's done it very well. But I'll tell you, through that 30 years, he's always been sponsorable and had a sponsor, and he has always been in the jails and the hospitals and detoxes and doing 12-step work when he's not working at that job. He is, he's found a way to do it and keep the channel open at both ends. But I am not that guy. You know, I am just a lazy guy. Because it takes, it takes a, it's a, you would do that all day for 10 hours. You've got to get off work and have a good attitude and go out and do it some more. And that's a hard thing to do. I'm not, I couldn't do it. And I understand why my first sponsor encouraged me to get out of that line of work, and I didn't until God intervened. Tradition number nine. AA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. This is a tradition that I have never felt we've been in danger of, of violating. I, don't, I can't imagine that being over-organized is ever a problem in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I've never seen evidence of that. I, I, as a matter of fact, it's, it's almost the other way. And alcoholics, you can't organize alcoholics. It's like herding mosquitoes. You can't, I mean, you can't, I mean, you can't do it. It's, it's just, just a simple thing. After this day's over, if, if we all decided we're going to, let's all eat dinner together. You know what a, what, a, what a job that would be to get us all to the same restaurant? We'd need five strong Alanons here to just kind of get us all in shape. I mean, we really, because everybody here would have a different idea of where to go. I mean, we'd all go, and, and we'd all be right about our idea of where to go. And we'd all know how the other person's idea of where to eat is wrong, and we'd be able to explain it to them, and it'd be, it'd be chaos. Uh, I, if you ever want an unusual experience, go to the business meeting of a conference or your home group when there's some big issue on the floor, and just, just stand back and watch what happens. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing to watch the hand of God work through this cut this chaos 
into forming a group conscience. And out of this, this unorganized, chaotic, sometimes whirlwind of opinions and personalities and egos, something materializes in the midst of the whirlwind. And it's a group conscience. And it's an amazing thing to watch. And I think it, it always happens in, inf in informed groups where their, their consciousness and their desire is to better serve Alcoholics Anonymous. I've watched it. I, sometimes, I, because I'm a, one of the senior, not the oldest member in our group, but I'm probably, we, got some, we actually got quite a few members sober a lot longer than me. But because I'm one of the people that, that sort of found, put the group together, me and a couple of the guys I sponsored, <coughs> I often sit back in the business meetings and almost abstain and let the group conscience. And I will only ever, I, a lot of times I won't even vote. A lot of times I'll just sit there and watch and I'll vote the group conscience. I'll just go along with the pack. And it's an interesting, and I do that because sometimes I won't even vote at all. And I do that because I found something that, that started to occur. There might be 30 or 40 guys I sponsor in the business meeting. There's only like 60 people in the business meeting. And they'll watch how I vote, and some of them will vote the way I vote. So I don't vote. And I just see what happens. Now, if it's something I feel strongly enough and I really feel is, then I can't, then it's, it just seizes me like, a, like some kind of Tourette's thing. I just have to vote. But I, but I try not to. Uh, because I don't want to be an un undue influence. I believe in the power of the group conscience. I believe in the power of God that works through our group conscience. I, I've seen too much evidence of it. And I, don't, I, have a, I have a strong personality and a tremendously big ego problem. And I do not. I love my home group. I love my home group. And I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to protect AA from me. And I don't want to be an undue, I don't want to be the guy that controls everything. I don't want, and I can go that way so easy. And, it's, I, and I'll go that way sometimes, and I don't know I'm doing it. And I've had the group, I've had people in the group come and tell me when I'm doing that. And they, they'll tell me. I don't know I'm doing it, because I just, it's just the right way. I mean, I just, <laughs> but I, I'm becoming the actor who wants to run the whole show again. Ten, Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the AA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. If there was one tradition that I personally have struggled the most with, it's this one. On a spiritual level, personal level, I think that if I could, if I could go opinionless in my life, I would be the guy carrying out the decision in step three. But I can't. I can't go very long without. I'm a very opinionated guy. I, I don't mean to. It's a function of my ego that I've never seemed to be able to outgrow completely. I, I keep it. I surrender and keep it down, and I remind myself of the decision in step three, and I take the tenth step and uncover the things that are, that got me on the muscle or trying to control stuff. But I'm a very opinionated guy. I have opinions about a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I, there's something about me that I'll get very clear and right opinions about things I don't even know anything about. And I don't, it's, it's like I just know stuff. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't even have to be right. I just, and I can, then I can build a whole case about how it is right without any information. I've had opinions on people. I, I got some really close friends today that years ago I had so many opinions about and I, that I was convinced were true, and they're not true. My sponsor of the last uh, 
11 years is a guy named Clancy. And I'll tell you, my first eight or 10 years of sobriety, I had a lot of it. I didn't like him. I had all these judgments. Now, I never even talked to him. I never sat down and had a cup of coffee with him. I just would sit back and judge him. I had all kinds of opinions on him. And they were all wrong. They were all wrong. I think the ultimate surrender is getting to a place to know where I would know the most important thing I could ever know is that I don't know. I don't know. The minute I become the I know guy, I become the unsurrendered guy. That is, that is, my, that is the main action that I experience and I struggle with of this part of me that has the propensity to play God. I get up on the throne of judgment and I just know crap. And I'm right about everything. And I'll thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous that you guys have taught me how to be wrong. And it's okay to be wrong. And I'm wrong a lot. As a matter of fact, my, the whole essence of my fourth and fifth step was to look to see where I was wrong. Wrong in my... I had a list of people I'd built cases of in my resentment list. A list of people that I was secretly convinced owed me an amends. And I processed it through the bottom of page 65 and the top of, or bottom of page 66 and the top of 67 when I was finally started to realize the thing that the book asked me to realize. And I started to see how I'd misjudged these people, how wrong I'd been about them. And oddly enough, I come out the backside really wrong because I owe every single one of these people an amends without exception. Every single, every person on my resentment list I owed an amends to without exception. Without exception. And there were some people there I would have sworn to you I'd never did anything to them. Look what they did to me. And I just kept my wrongdoings in the shadow of theirs and so I never had to look at it. And you guys showed me how to dismantle the opinion machine inside of me. And I, boy, if I could stay there. Boy, if I could stay there. The Buddhists have many, many stories that talking about the wisdom of knowing that you don't know. And that is my, that's the, this is the one tradition, spiritual principle in Alcoholics Anonymous I probably struggle with the most. I'm very opinionated to this day. Tradition number 11, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. When I, when I introduce myself in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous within the fellowship, I introduced myself by my first and last name. I didn't always. My first couple of years is two years of sobriety. I'm Bob. I'm an alcoholic. First time I ever heard someone give me the last name in a meeting, I was expecting the tradition police to storm the room. I mean, he gave his last name. It's horrible. And I went to, a, I got involved in general service, and I went to a conference one time, and one of the big topics on the floor was was anonymity, and I heard trustees and delegates give their last name and explain why. I heard a guy talk about, quote Dr. Bob, when he, it's in, it's, there's a passage that's in Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers where he talks about uh, anonymity is set exactly at the, per, at the level of press, radio, and films, and he believed, and I believe today, that it's just as much a breach of the tradition to withhold myself from you within the fellowship as it is to go public. And to tell everybody, what a great member of AI. And I, I have, I have never broken my my anonymity publicly. 
and I've had a lot of opportunities. I, you know, I got one of those amazing people. I didn't know it was an amazing story because I lived it until people from the media had. There's a couple of them had found out that here's this guy who was a skid row bum, and now he owns a chain of liquor stores in Las Vegas. And they just thought that is a remarkable story, right? And we want to talk. And, and they they came and they wanted to do a deal with me, like some kind of media deal, like a story. They wanted, to, and I said, no, you can't do that to me. Well, we won't. We won't use your last name. It's too close. Everybody would figure it out. I mean, I'm the only guy that has that many stores in town. I'm the only. They'd know who it is. Well, what do you? Just no. Absolutely not. You'll kill me because the minute you do that, what has happened is I've allowed you and I've signed up for setting myself apart. Is that's the Bob, the the special AA member with the notoriety. And I'll die with that kind. I tell you one thing I think is dangerous. I think getting up here sometimes at this podium is a dangerous proposition in Alcoholics Anonymous. It really, it, it puts more of us sideways. It, it's, when, you, when you understand, when you ask a guy like me to get up here and do this and then tell me what a great job I've done, you don't, that does, listen, my ego does not need help. <laughs> I need to go the other way with it. I'm really, really, really and truly, I need to go the other way. Um, and I, one of the reasons I, I'm able to say yes to this stuff is I spend a lot of time in the trenches. And I hope, through God's grace, that allows me some kind of balance here. That um, for every time I get up and do this, I'm two or three times down in Skid Row, or I've got a guy in my car, I'm listening to a fifth step, or I'm doing all that other. I would hate to get emotionally drunk on, the, on what people say about me here. You know, and that's an easy thing. Bill talks about it in the 12 by 12. Or whoever wrote it, wrote it talks about it in the 12 by 12. About how we drink of success as it were a wine that never fails to elate us. I don't want to be anything special here. It's just another drunk. And if, I, and if anything I ever share in AA is of any value, I want you to know that it's not me. It is through me. And I just... I'm just privileged to have survived the experience to be able to tell you about it. But it was not me that survived it. It was the grace of something greater than me that brought me through it. Always maintain. And I give my last name here. And I, I, I want you to be able to find me. If you have, and my name, my number is listed in the phone book. Uh, and the reason I, I, and thank God I've always listed it. Because I, I overheard a conversation with my sponsor one time. He was talking to a guy. He says, "Why come? How come your number's not in the book? Are you afraid some new guy might call you?" And I said, right? You you ever you can call information and you ask for Bob Darrell in Las Vegas, in Nevada, and you will get my number. And I will answer that phone. And if I, if you get the answering machine, you leave a number. I'll call you back because they told me that's important. Call people back in AA. Call people back. Be responsible. And finally, tradition number 12. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. I thought for a long time that what they meant was that I must place the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous ahead of your weird, screwed-up personalities. That's not what they mean at all. There's only one personality I've got to apply the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous to, and that's me. I am the seat of all my judgment and separation and conflict. 
I am the personality that I must put these principles ahead of or I will destroy myself. It is my personality that will take me to the bar or a pistol. It is my personality that will judge myself out of Alcoholics Anonymous one person at a time. One person at a time. And if I'm to remain here and save my life, my personal recovery depends upon unity with you. And if I don't put the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous before my personality, my personality by nature wants to run the show and will judge and edge me out of here one judgment at a time. And Alcoholics Anonymous saves Alcoholics Anonymous from alcoholics and it saves me from me. And that is what has allowed us to survive uh, all these years, all these years. I have a daughter who is 18 years old. She just turned 18 last week, and I, she's the love of my life. I, uh, I don't believe she's alcoholic. She, at least she hasn't, she hasn't showed up yet. But if she ever turns out to be, or her children turn out to be, what happens if one of them is standing on a bridge with a bottle of Richard's Wild Irish Rose trying to take, get up enough courage to, to kill themselves, and AA no longer exists? I want Alcoholics Anonymous to be here for, for the generations and generations to come. And I will read the, the long form and close of the 12th tradition because I think it's one of the most beautiful things ever written in AA. And Bill says, and finally, we have Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the principle of anonymity has an immense spiritual significance. It reminds us that we are to place principles before personalities, that we are actually to practice a genuine humility this to the end, that our great blessings may never spoil us, that we shall forever live in thankful contemplation of him who presides over us all. Thank you very much.